0: Welcome to Reteach, a place where professors know that student equity gaps can be closed and are willing to put in the work to figure it out. We are dedicated to our teaching and our students. We are passionate about improving our classrooms and our communities. We can make a difference. We will make a difference. I am your host, Bruce Hoskins, and my mind and heart are ready to learn. So, what's up everyone? So I really want to let you know right off the bat that these um, next two podcasts are really going to be hard for me because in order to do these correctly, I have to live through some educational trauma that I have experienced, right? And when I say trauma, I really do mean trauma in all the, the aspects of what that word means and understand that I've told these stories a hundred times to students. But for some reason, it is much harder to do it right now, maybe because I don't have their faces to remind me that everything is okay, that I'm a different person now than I was before, right? And, you know, and I do, I always want to make sure that my students understand. It's like, look, yes, I'm Dr. Bruce Hoskins now, but I wasn't always this person. And so when I experienced the trauma that I did in the third grade, in regards to my educational experience, and yes, folks, I am talking about something that goes all the way back to me, for to the third grade, 40 years ago. I remember this series of events almost like it was yesterday. I kid you not. And so for me, that lets me know that this is definitely one of those traumatic events that happens that literally stamps on your heart, on your soul even, right? And let me get something real straight right now, and that is, I know that stuff like this happens to people all the time, okay? And so, I don't want to make this into a, yo, what was me or something like that what i want to make sure that you understand is that when you come from a historically marginalized group or groups like myself then all of a sudden one series of events doesn't define you as a person right because that one series of events it could be fixed to whatever degree or you could be resocialized and you could be socialized in other spaces that that's not who you are but when you come from a historically marginalized space like myself, or like I said, historically marginalized spaces like myself. What you find out is that although you may have this one experience, but it's also reinforced culturally and socially, and in the media, and, you know, through your families, and stuff like that. And so it's reinforced in other spaces. And so I really want to make sure people understand. It's like, look, this is not just one story of one person. This is a story about how historically marginalized people are, there's no other word for it, oppressed through the traditional K-12 system, okay? And so that's where I want to kind of pick this up. And just talking about how in the third grade, so I need you to give you a little bit of context here, is that I am black, just in case I haven't made that clear before, or in case you haven't visited my website, I am black, even though my mom is black, or excuse me, even though my mom is Japanese. Now, I know that that's really hard for some of y'all to digest, but for real, I'm black. And yes, my mom is Japanese, and so when I tell you stuff like, you know, my mom barely spoke English and stuff like that, then hopefully you have a context for that. There's plenty of room for people to have a multiracial identity now. But back then, really, you had to, I'm going to just say, choose sides, if you would. And so for me, it was actually really easy for me to choose a side. Actually, I didn't really choose a side. The side chose me. It was black. And um, for whatever reason, people didn't question whether I was black my whole life. And so just kind of live with that one for folks. I'll talk about that, you know, in, in later spaces. But right now, that's not the focus, right? And so here I am, I'm a, I'm a black kid. I am interpreted as black. That's really important to understand. But then also is that I was actually a very disruptive student in class. And look, this is no saint story, right? It's like I'm, I'm not a saint by any stretch of the imagination, but what I want to make sure people are questioning as I'm telling the story is like, is why was I disruptive? And I'm going to tell you why I was disruptive. And I truly believe that any teacher who is paying attention to their students and sees their students, all of them, right? Sees them as students, sees them as people that they could have saw this. I promise you this. The reason why I was so disruptive in class, quite simply was because I was bored. But I don't mean bored like bored with the work. I was bored because I would complete my work faster than everyone else. And then I would start talking to the students around me. That's who I was as a student, right? It's like all day. That is me all day, folks, right? And so then I really believe that if a a teacher is really paying attention to their students, that this is a really easy thing to actually see. And that what I needed... I would argue, is that I needed to be challenged more, but we'll wait for that punchline closer towards the end here, right? The other thing that you need to understand about me is that I grew up poor, right? My father wasn't around. My mother barely spoke English, so there's there's some help there. And she always worked at a very, you know, manufacturing, low-level assembly line manufacturing jobs or restaurant jobs and things like that. And so understand this, this is a phrase that I don't think happens anymore. Well, it definitely happens. It just doesn't happen the way that it was um, back when I was young. And that is I was a latchkey kid, okay? And so a latchkey kid, for the people who don't know, is a latchkey kid is, is a kid who has a key tied around their neck, right? It's like, it's in some way, shape or form, it's like, you got a key, you got a key. And that's your house key, right and the reason why you have this house key is because your school doesn't have any after school programs for your parents to put you in uh because I was poor and my school was underfunded and so yes we didn't have any after school programs and things like that and so what i had to do is i had to walk home and i had to open the door to my house and i knew that there was going to be no one there to watch me right my older brother and my older sister they got home later uh they got let out of school later on and so then i never had any, you know, parental supervision uh, when I got home, period, right? And even if my brother and sister were there, my brother's only two years older than me. And I mean, I'm talking about the third grade. And so what am I, eight? My brother would have been like, what, 10? And my sister, she's five years older. And so she would have been, man, 13 or something like that. And so even if they were home, that would be still weird, right? And probably, honestly, illegal today, right? And so be that as it may, right? One of the things that my mom, right, the poor, you know, background and all of this stuff, and that my mom, she had to work her behind off in order to make ends meet, right? And so one of the things that was just completely understood for me was that I needed to know how to stay out of trouble, Okay, so that when I came home, when my mom came home, that I didn't add more stress to her already super stressful life. And I really valued that as a child. And so when I came home, I came home and I would stay out of trouble. But the way that I did this. And so here's here's the beginning of all the trauma now. It's not that any of that wasn't traumatic enough, but let me. Let me say, it's like now I'm starting with the trauma part of this in the education system. And so what I would do in order to stay out of trouble is I would do these math problems. It's like my teacher, she gave us this math book in the third grade and she never assigned any work out of it. I mean, literally, she gave it to us and we took it home and we never used it, right? Right. And I know that might sound weird to some folks, but that is exactly what happened. And so when I got home, right, there's there's no assignments out of this book. And so when I would get home, I would actually just do math problems. I know that that actually sounds like really sick and twisted to some of y'all, especially if you're math phobics, right? It's like, look, I'm doing math problems on my own volition, like straight up. I'm just doing them. But part of it was because I needed to stay out of trouble. The other part, I was bored. But. And the other part is that there wasn't no cartoon network back in my day. Back in my day, there wasn't no cartoon network. And so no 24-hour, you know, a day cartoon station and stuff like that. And so literally, I had to figure out a way to entertain myself. I chose to do math problems in the same way that I would do Sudoku puzzles and stuff like that, like now, right? And so here I am literally just plugging away at these problems in this math book. And it took me about a month. It took me about a month for me to be done with the math book. I'm literally, I'm being dead serious. It's like, so I had all these papers and I was just doing problems out of the math book. And, and it was this big old stack of papers. And I remember turning in those stack of papers into my third grade teacher, right? I gave a, gave her that stack of papers and she kind of looked at me weird. Right. And I, I would think that that's the normal response. You kind of look at a kid weird when they stand, hand you a big old stack of papers that you weren't expecting to get. And she was like, so what is this? And I told her, it's the math book. Right. I wasn't articulate. I was a third grade kid. I'm like eight years old. So don't expect a whole bunch of good stuff from this side of the story for me, folks. Don't 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 try to come at me with Bruce, you should have used your agency better. I was in a third grade. So chill with that. But anyway, so I told her, it's the book. And then I kind of walked away. I really didn't have any expectations of the space. I mean, like I said, kid, you, right? I'm gonna keep on coming to this space. I'm in the third grade. I really don't have any expectations of what was supposed to happen at that moment. And so, but now I want you to think about what do you think happened after I turned in the papers, right? And so, well, here I'll give you this part: is that I, she turned, she gave them back to me. It probably took her about a week or so. Uh, for her to give her, to give me all those papers back. And when I got them back, they had a whole bunch of red marks on them. And so I really want to make sure you understand, I'm not some mathematical genius. I just happened to do the math book, right? The thing though, that I saw that when she gave me all these papers with the red marks on them, what I saw was that, oh, oh, that's what that meant. Like I, I literally was making the same mistake over and over again, because my interpretation of what the math book said to me was just different than what than what it really, you know, meant, right? And so, but I kept on making the same mistake. And so when I corrected that one mistake, everything became right from there. And so everything that I did, I'm not a math genius. But everything that I did was very correctable. Once I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, well, that was what that meant. And just kept kind of kept on going through, and I saw where my mistakes were. And my question to you now is, what do you think happened to me? What do you think happened between this teacher and I after this moment? You know what? I'm going to build up the drama even a little bit more right now, is that I shared this story with a child development class, Right, and I asked them this question. I was like, "Yo, so what do you think this teacher did with me?" And yo, it was like they said things that were pure to me, genius to say. It's like, "Oh, did she put you in a higher level math course?" The answer, no, she didn't do that. Uh, somebody else said, "It's like, did they did they give you just another book?" And I said, "That's a great idea." Nope, that's not what happened either. And the students quickly started figuring out, like, "Oh." Well, what the heck did happen? And then I gave him one like, "Yo, she didn't even give me a good job or a attaboy. Hey, you know what? You made some mistakes, but let me let's let's work through some of these and let's 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 develop you. You know, it's like let's let's develop this talent that you have, or at least desire to do math. Right? That didn't even happen. You want to know what happened?" Nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. And I lived through that moment almost on a daily basis, folks, like for real. And I don't know how much I realized. I'm I'm fairly confident I didn't realize at the time how traumatizing this was. I mean, I was only in third grade, how traumatizing this was actually going to be to me. This is what that moment taught me. What I learned in that moment was that going above and beyond is not appreciated, is not expected, and is not necessary. Honestly, I feel like my whole life would have changed if this moment in my life was just appreciated. Whether she gave me another book or not, whatever, but just appreciate it. Because what, I, what people don't understand is that um again and I'm not saying this in ego is that how little I actually worked all the way through from in the K-12 through system after that point now granted I am I' like in high school I was like a 3.5 you know student and this was really before all the AP classes and stuff started kicking in and so 3.5 was uh was a you know rock solid really high GPA to have and I never worked hard for it I never tried to work hard for anything. And that's, that is the honest truth, folks. I, I could Cadillac my way. I could, I could ease my way. I could rely, I could chill my way to A's and B's. That's the student I was. And I found out relatively quickly that this was good. It was good enough. And people didn't bother me. Right. I wasn't getting in trouble. Uh, well, it, I I didn't get in trouble until after I was done with my homework and started talking in class a lot. But we'll talk about that one a little bit later on. But this was what happened to me as a result of that. And I can tell you now with confidence, I didn't go full speed again. I kid you not. I didn't go full speed again until December 26, 2006. And I already know some of y'all are like, "Yo, how do you know the day like that?" I could tell you why I know the day like that. It's because on November 30th, 2006, this is when I went through my first defense of my dissertation. November 30, 2006, this is a day that is burnt into my brain forever because that's the day when I failed my first dissertation defense. And here's the deal, is that I knew, I knew that I had turned in a paper that was less than my best. I knew it was, but by that time, it had become normal to me to do less than my best. It became normal to me because I was just like, yo, it also became normal to me because it was a defense mechanism against the pain of rejection if you would because if I had done my best and still got hammered for it I was just like I had my ego just couldn't stand something like that and so you know what I'm gonna do less than my best and if I wind up getting like a B or something then cool I just get a B But if I do less than my best to get a C or a D, well, at least I know that I didn't do my absolute very best on that thing. And so that became a defense mechanism for me my whole entire life. It became normal for me. But when I went into my first defense, I got absolutely body slammed in that space and my my dissertation folks my committee they were like yo they didn't they weren't disappointed if you would but they they let me know specifically bruce this is nowhere near to your best you need to step your game up and i was wondering how i was going to do that and here this is how clear they made it to me that my dissertation sucked one of the people on the dissertation committee he wrote 11 pages of critique to let me know how bad my dissertation was. 11 pages of critique, folks. 11 pages of critique to let me know was like, yo, you are not bringing your A game, step your game up. And I'm like, wow, I was not expecting this. At least to the degree that it came at me because I had spent my whole life, damn near my whole life doing things the way that I had just done it. With no negative ramifications, oh, you know, big time negative ramifications. But in this space, I got turned down. And it was extremely difficult. And the other thing that I experienced in the space, and thank goodness that I had the big homie, uh, Edward Pollard. He was in the space. Now he is Dr. Edward Pollard. He wasn't Dr. Edward Pollard at the time, but he was able to help me out because he came with me to my defense and, um, and he even told me, he was like, Bruce, when you were in that space, there was no time that you ever became Dr. Bruce Hoskins. There was no time in that space where you ever became Dr. Bruce Hoskins. You stayed a student the whole time. And I was like, thank you for that. I understand. That makes sense to me. And... The reason why I can say that it wasn't until December 26, 2006, until I went full speed again, is because after that, after I, you know, didn't pass my first defense, I still had my job here at Maricosta, right? And so I had to finish my semester, and I looked through that 11 pages of critique, and I actually figured out, I was like, you know what, it's like, as as bad as this is, 11 pages of freaking critique, right? Um, There was only four things that he kept saying. And that if I address those in my theory section, then most of the critique that he's saying will actually go away. Or at least it'll be explained. And I'm like, cool. And so it wasn't so like daunting of a task. But that was but of course, it was a huge, huge, gigantic deal to me still. Right. And so, again, so the reason why I can say it was December 26, 2006, is that that's the day after Christmas and I kid you not, I was married already. I had some kids, you know, I had, had a family. And I literally like kissed my kids and my wife like almost goodbye because I went to my office on December 26th and they didn't see, oh, damn near didn't see me again for four weeks because I had buried myself in my work for four weeks. And in four weeks, I added 40 pages and 70 citations to my dissertation. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but that is more writing and more reading than I have ever done in my life before. And I literally turned it on, right? In retrospect, I am so happy that my committee turned me down for the first defense because now I knew what I was capable of. And if I would have got my, my PhD with just the minimum effort, I would never have the confidence that I have now that I actually am pretty smart academically. I still struggle with that, but it's better now. And so just to finish this up, because I want to let you know, it's was like, look, I, I'm telling you, I, I went into my second defense with that little Wayne swag like I I was I was so ready you have no idea how ready I was but when I walked into the defense into my defense my professors were already standing up now I didn't know what that meant as a matter of fact my dissertation chair uh Elaine Bell Kaplan she was like oh, we're just stretching our legs. And that made perfect sense to me. And so I was like, okay, cool. You know. And so I was about to take a seat. And right before I took a seat, she was like, nah, we just, I'm just playing. Congratulations, Dr. Bruce Hoskins. And my whole life changed in that moment because I realized that working at 100% was not only possible, but where it could get me to. And so what we need to do if you're truly hearing what I'm saying, then this is what we need to do. We need to reteach ourselves about why students may be disruptive in a class. Because this all started with this disruptive kid, but to recognize that there's all kinds of reasons for a kid to be disruptive. But if we don't reteach ourselves we can wind up putting these kids into these historically marginalized boxes and devalue them based on that rather than seeing the potential in them, right? And so we need to see that potential in these historically marginalized groups. We need to reteach ourselves how to see that potential, right? Because We have to understand that we have been socialized to not see it. And that is everyone, folks, is not just white people, is not just males, is not just straight people. Whatever the heck you want to put into that space is not just them. we have all been socialized to not see it, to not see in these historically marginalized spaces. That's why, to whatever degree, they have been historically marginalized. Right. And so. And we also we have to reteach ourselves about who would benefit for for being pushed towards excellence. Is that if you look, if you truly understand what I'm saying, we could change millions of lives, period. And I would argue we would even change more lives within historically marginalized spaces because this group has more untapped potential in it because of how we've been socialized. Right, And so then if we are going to make a difference, we have to learn how to re-teach ourselves how to see our students because we have been socialized away from seeing their potential, their greatness, and everything that they can be in their lives, all the greatness that could be in that space. We have been trained not to see it. We have been trained to say that it's deviant. We've been trained to say that it is less than. We have been trained to say this is unacceptable. We have been trained to see it that way. We have been socialized in those spaces and we have to re-socialize ourselves. We have to re-teach ourselves to have the impact on student equity that we know that we can. Anyway, I ran way longer on that one than I thought it was, folks. I hope you learned something, peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reteach. If you wanna learn more about me or my open source introduction to sociology textbook, please go to brucehoskins.com. In closing, I wanna leave us all with a question. If you learned something today that you think would help close your student equity gaps, how long will it take to incorporate this into your classroom? A year, a semester, next month, today? No matter the timetable, we must commit ourselves to becoming better teachers. Our students deserve it, all of them, not just the ones that are good already.